first served as pastor straight out of seminary. It was in this uh, little community called uh, Mitchell, Illinois, right across uh, the uh, Mississippi River from St. Louis. As a solo pastor of that little church, I wore a number of different hats. I was, of course, the only speaker at, at that church. Um, I did adult education, hospital calling, um, baptisms, weddings, funerals, and one of my favorite things, I did youth ministry. As a matter of fact, uh, I continue to stay in touch with a number of people who were in the youth group from that first church that I served. One of them actually came here a couple of years ago, surprised me by showing up one Saturday night for worship. And just as I was about to do the closing benediction, she stood up and said, I just want to say, uh, anyway, went on. It was great. <laughs> um, but one of the, the things that I remember uh, about that youth group, we, we did a lot of, of really cool stuff together. Um, one thing I, I did, I took them to um, visit a synagogue um, a couple of times. And I remember the very first time I did that, um, I can't remember where it, where it was, but I do remember what happened there. Um, we, we went to the synagogue uh, not only to look at what it was like, but uh, to, to actually sit down and talk with the rabbi, who was very gracious, took time uh, out of his uh, schedule to, to speak with us and so on. And I can remember the very moment when, as the rabbi was speaking, it began to dawn on my group of students that the rabbi and his congregation did not share our belief that Jesus is the Son of God. They were shocked. They, they were stunned. I think I heard them, you know, some of them gasp, you know, incredulous. And at, one of them actually asked the rabbi, excuse me, could you repeat what you just said? And I remember, you know, we... Um, kind of finished things up, got uh, in the cars, and headed back to the church where we had uh, a number of subsequent conversations uh, about that. Uh, I mention this because Christianity and Judaism in the modern world are two very distinct religions. Most people believe that you are either Jewish or you are Christian, but you can't be both. The one... um, a uh, very small exception to that rule, of course, are uh, people from the Messianic Jewish community, uh, folks like uh, Jews for Jesus, who are going to be with us uh, this coming uh, Good Friday to talk about Christ and the Passover. But that's a very, very, very uh, small minority of people. Most people, though, today believe either Jewish or Christian. You can't be both. Now, that wasn't the case. It wasn't always the case. Jesus first followers, like Jesus himself, were Jewish. The people that write about him in the New Testament, vast majority, are Jewish. Uh, And what's interesting is these Jewish followers of Jesus Christ viewed their beliefs as being completely consistent and totally in continuity with Jewish tradition, with Jewish teaching, and with the Hebrew Scriptures. But over time, Christianity and Judaism uh, split apart. They grew apart. So much so that today, uh, our Jewish friends and synagogue will wonder, how could anyone 
possibly believe that Jesus is the Messiah and Son of God. Whereas Christians oftentimes ask the question, how could anyone not believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God? It seems so obvious to both groups that the other one is, with respect, mistaken. Now, the question is, if, if Christianity really grew out of Judaism, and the, the first Christians were Jews who saw what they believed in continuity with and kind of a continuation of what they read about in, in the Hebrew Scripture, what led to the split between Christianity and Judaism? And for our purposes today also, how should we understand the relationship between Judaism and Christianity today? This weekend, we are continuing our message series on Rabbi Jesus by turning our attention to the topic of Rabbi Jesus and what has come to be called the parting of the ways, the parting of the ways between Judaism and Christianity. Now, it's important at the very start for us to understand something that's really important. Rabbi Jesus didn't set out to start a new or a rival religion. Not a new or rival religion that stood in opposition to to Judaism. And we see this in a number of very clear and explicit statements that he makes uh, throughout the Gospels, and not just in one Gospel, but in, um, uh, in all of them. The very beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, which is recorded in, in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, immediately after Jesus, he begins with the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, blessed are those who mourn, and, and so on. Pretty much right after that, one of the things he says at the very outset is this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, when you read those words, law or prophets, what is he referring to here? He's referring to the Hebrew Scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. The law is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Some scholars call it the Pentateuch. But basically, they're the books that we identify now as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy by tradition, attributed to to Moses. And so, um, Jesus is saying, I did not come to abolish the Torah, those first five books, or the prophets. What are are the prophets? The rest of the Hebrew Bible, which is called the Tanakh. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And then he goes on to say, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus seems to want to make it crystal clear that his teaching doesn't contradict and isn't opposed to what's taught in the Torah and in the Tanakh. It is in continuity with. Doesn't contradict those things. Uh, It carries forward what uh, the Torah and Tanakh teach. And the New Testament tells us it actually completes and fulfills what's in the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, as I mentioned, it's, Jesus doesn't just make this point in one place. That it happens to be at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew in his conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. Here we're in the Gospel of John now, John chapter 4. Uh, Jesus is, is talking with this Samaritan woman 
uh, who shares some beliefs with the Jewish people. The Samaritans share some beliefs with them, uh, but they worship God in a very different um, um, location and, and have some differences. Jesus tells the Samaritan woman at the well, salvation is from the Jews. Later in John, uh, chapter 5, verse 39, he says that the Hebrew Scriptures, he now starts talking explicitly about the Hebrew Scriptures. He says the Hebrew Scriptures point to him. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that testify on my behalf. And he reinforces this point. Um, when he says a short while later, again in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 46, Moses wrote of me. So this is Matthew. This is John. In the Gospel of Luke, an incredible story and a well-known story that takes place after Jesus has been crucified on, on what we now call Good Friday, crucified, dead, and buried, raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, some people believe, uh, uh, some of his followers believe that it's happened. Others don't. Uh, there are two disciples, uh, two followers of Jesus who were walking on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus uh, appears to them in his risen body. So they don't uh, immediately recognize who he is. He asks them, what are you, you guys talking about? And they say, you've got to be the only person who doesn't know. And they start telling him uh, about this man, Jesus, who we had hoped would be the one who would save Israel, but how he was put to death. And Jesus continues to walk uh, with them, and they um, go to a place where he's, he begins to um, explore Scripture with them. And explain scripture, their Hebrew scripture, our Old Testament. And Luke writes these words, Then beginning with Moses, Moses, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, that's the rest of the Hebrew Bible, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in the scriptures. And what's going on? In all of these texts, what is taking place here? Jesus is connecting the dots. He is helping his followers see their sacred scripture in a fresh new way. And it was, uh, uh, in large part, a fresh new way. Because what Jesus is doing here is challenging the conventional wisdom, kind of the majority view that was held, held during that time, which, which held that the Messiah, when the Messiah come, it would be absolutely crystal clear because the Messiah would appear in power. He would overthrow all of Israel's enemies. And in that immediate context, we're talking about the Roman Empire, the people who mercilessly tax the Jewish people, who uh, in many ways impose themselves upon the Jewish people, who... Uh, who stand as an um, unavoidable military presence among them. Conventional wisdom was that the Messiah would come in power, overthrow the, uh, the oppressors of the Jewish people, and usher in a golden age of freedom 
and peace. And over against that conventional wisdom, Jesus teaches something very different. And, and we see him teaching this uh, well before his death and resurrection. When he tells his disciples that a famous uh, passage that takes place in Caesarea um, um, Philippi, Jesus taught his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. What, what prompted him to say that? He'd ask a question of his disciples. Who do you guys th- say that I am? And someone said, well, uh, some people say you're, you're John the Baptist and some people say you're Elijah. And Jesus says, but who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, means the Messiah. Jesus says, that's right. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. And that's the point at which when Peter identifies him as the Messiah, that's the point at which from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's what the Messiah is going to do, Jesus says, against the conventional wisdom. This is so upsetting to Peter that Peter says, heaven forbid that this should ever happen to you, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And why does he call Peter Satan? Because the Son of Man has to do these things. The word must. I want to call your attention to the word must. He must go and undergo great suffering and be killed and be raised. It's a completely different understanding of the person and work of the Messiah. Here's the important thing for our purposes. It is every bit as biblical. Indeed, it is uh, more biblical in some ways because it elevates some of the texts that uh, the majority view overlooks. One of the, the most compelling, although not the, uh, certainly not the only text like this, but uh, one of the most memorable um, is um, Isaiah chapter 53. Let me read just a portion of this. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, He was despised and rejected by many, a man of suffering, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his stripes or bruises we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb 
that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. And going down a little bit, it says, He poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. See, this is a, a text that, um, that gives us a very different picture of, uh, and a very different prophecy about what to expect in the Messiah. Uh, the, as, as we think about Jesus saying that how the Scriptures um, testify to, to me, how Moses wrote of, of me, uh, we see this in, in a number of places in the Gospels too. The Gospel of Matthew uh, especially loves pointing out these connections between the Hebrew Scriptures and their fulfillment in Jesus. As a matter of fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew actually uses a formula that occurs a number of times in his Gospel where he will write, all this took place in order to fulfill that which had been promised through the prophet, say, Isaiah. And then he'll quote the text that Jesus' life or teaching death uh, fulfills. But Matthew isn't alone in that. Other Gospels point that out. The book of Hebrews points this out. The letters of Paul point out connections between Jesus' life and what's, what's taught in, in Scriptures. All of which is to say this. Rabbi Jesus did not set out to start a new or rival religion that was opposed to um, Judaism. But instead, he saw his mission and he saw his teaching as growing out of biblical Judaism. Sure, understood in a different way. Not the conventional wisdom with the Messiah coming in glory to overthrow the Romans. Uh, A different picture, but all of it rooted, grounded in Jewish Scripture and teaching. But if, if Jesus didn't set out to start a new arrival religion, that still leaves us with the question, why are there two religions today? And the answer to that question is, is really the, the, the history. History helps us to understand the parting of the ways. Now, let me repeat. The first Christians were almost exclusively Jewish. The very, very first ones. Um, as a matter of fact, the, the first, um, first Christians, as, you know, which movement really began in Jerusalem among his followers after Jesus was raised uh, from the dead, uh, they were originally seen as, as like a new subset of, of Judaism. If you read the New Testament, uh, the Gospels, uh, we read about groups like the Pharisees. And then we read about the Sadducees. And we read about the Zealots. So who are, who are all these guys? Well, the Pharisees are a group of lay people who uh, 
use uh, relying on the oral law that built up around the Hebrew Scriptures, tried to figure out how we can implement our faith in a day-to-day way. Um, who are the Sadducees? The Sadducees are, are kind of wealthier people. They're more connected, kind of collaborating with the Romans. They're people that really want the status quo to remain. They don't want to shake things up too much. Theologically, they've got differences with the Pharisees. The Pharisees believe in the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the rest of the Scriptures, the the prophets as well. Whereas the Sadducees only believe in the Torah. The Sadducees, because they only believe in the Torah and because they interpret it in a certain way, don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees do because they see evidence of it in the rest of the Hebrew Bible. Who are the zealots then? Well, they're not necessarily a formal group. You know what they are? They're a loose network of revolutionaries who are interested in overthrowing the Roman government. We know from um, archaeology that there were other groups as well. There's a group of, uh, of, of Jewish people who lived near the Dead Sea called the Essenes. And when the Dead Sea Scrolls were, were discovered, we um, found some of their scriptures as well. So we've got at least Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, Essenes, and then we've got this new group that's come into being called the Christians, and they're Jews too. It's just their beliefs are different. What sets Christian Jews apart from the rest is their belief rooted in Jesus' resurrection that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, with that as the background, let me say this. The parting of the ways between uh, Christians and Jewish people was not marked by one great event or one defining moment. It was a process. Now, to be sure, uh, we see uh, sort of the seeds of, of some of, uh, of the parting of the ways in the Gospels because there is obvious tension between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious rulers. And we see this in, uh, in the Gospels. Um, but that doesn't mean that the, the Jewish people were opposed to, to Jesus. His followers were all Jewish. Many Jewish people loved Jesus, followed Jesus. The Bible tells us that the common people heard him gladly. They believed in Jesus. They hoped that he was the Messiah as that first great Palm Sunday celebration shows us. After Jesus' death and resurrection, though the conflict that has always been there a little bit continues. It continues as Jesus' followers, his disciples, celebrate while his enemies try to suppress the news that Jesus is alive. And why would his disciples celebrate it? And why would Jesus' enemies try to suppress it? Because 
the resurrection indicates that he is indeed the Messiah and the Son of God. And so his disciples want to spread the news everywhere. His enemies want to tamp it down. Now, one of the, the huge events, and in some sense, uh, this is a kind of a turning point uh, in the unfolding of the, the parting of the ways, takes place in 70 AD. Prior, uh, for a few years leading up to 70 AD, the Zealots, remember I was talking about them, this group of, of Jewish people who wanted to overthrow the Roman government? They decided to uh, start, basically start a revolution. And they began to, to rise up against the Romans. Um, Got to tell you something, though. It, they may have hoped it was going to be a David and Goliath story. Um, it turned out the exact opposite. Goliath didn't win this one. Or D David doesn't win this one. Goliath does. Because the Roman Empire is the mightiest empire the world has ever known. And so in 70 AD, under the leadership of a general named Titus, the Romans, um, first of all, they starve the people of Jerusalem. They, they lay siege to the city. They surround it. No one goes in. No one gets out. The people suffer terribly, begin to starve to death. And then they finally attack and they destroy the Jewish temple. In 70 AD, the zealots who were largely responsible for the uprising, what few of them could escape or or otherwise weren't present at the moment, flee to the, this mountaintop fortress called Masada. And Masada, they're surrounded by the Romans. The Romans lay siege to them. And in um, uh, an extraordinary um, event, which we are not sure is history or legend, rather than being uh, killed by the Romans, uh, all of the zealots and all of their families um, commit suicide rather than surrender. Whether that's history or not, we don't know. But it's certainly um, a story that is loved and, and retold uh, in Israel today. But here's why the destruction of the temple is so important. With no temple, it's burnt. Its stones have been torn down. With no temple, there is no longer a biblically sanctioned location where the Jewish people come to offer sacrifices. No temple, no sacrifices. With no sacrifices, there is no need for a priesthood. There's no need for Levites and all of the rest of that, you know, the, the machinery, uh, if, if you will, of, of, of Judaism as it was centered on temple worship. What that means is Judaism, as it has been practiced for centuries, comes to a screeching halt. If you've read the Old Testament, I hope that you have you, you know how important it is to offer 